You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee and with me is Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hello, Paul. <laughs> Glad to be back. Yes, you, you good get... Good topics to... this week? Yeah, we do have some good topics oh. this week. I, a lot of sort of big driving-related news stories, but I wanted, before getting into what's happened in the news, the news that's happened at Acumen Law. Oh, yeah. We had a, a very good decision. Uh, came last Friday. It was Brandon... Uh, um, and Emma basically did it, but Brandon was the one who went and argued it in BC Supreme Court, but you lay it out and explain it. Yes. Um, so basically what happened, so what happened was Brandon and Emma were dealing with a notice of intent to prohibit. And you and I had talked a little while ago about the notice of intent to prohibit scheme and how unfair it is. And Emma had set this up very smartly in her submissions to the superintendent about why their client couldn't be given a driving prohibition on the basis of a single cell phone ticket. So it was a class seven driver, somebody with a, an N, yep. and they got a cell phone ticket. And as a consequence, the superintendent of motor vehicles, you know, quote unquote, exercised their discretion and sent a notice of driving prohibition of three or four months, four something months, like four months yeah. uh, which is not uncommon. Uh, new driver, nothing else on their driving record, four-month driving prohibition for one ticket using a cell phone. Yeah, and the facts were actually really interesting because she got the cell phone ticket not because she had been using a phone, but for having a phone in the car. So the evidence that was led before the superintendent was that her passenger had put a cell phone on the dash of the car, and the police officer saw that and issued her the ticket saying, you can't have it anywhere in your in your accessible to you because you have the no electronic devices restriction. So Emma wrote in to dispute the prohibition, the duration and the prohibition itself. And she laid it out. We do quite a few of these letters and every one it's a, you know, you've got to customize it and do it for that person. And you've got to demonstrate a bunch of things. But we ultimately, um, in that case, Emma's, the thrust of her argument was that Really, these provisions are designed to recognize a pattern of behavior, uh, not just to punish somebody from a one-off, one thing on their driving record. Well, the one-off punishment is supposed to be the four demerit points and the $368 fine fine and the driver risk premium. Yeah. So that, yeah, that was the the view that we took and that was the submissions that Emma made and she set it up and we got the decision back and it didn't seem to consider any of that, which is not uncommon. Well, the prohibition was reduced. I've given some weight to your personal circumstances and I have decided to reduce the term of the prohibition from four months to three months. We have what we consider a success on these and that wasn't one we considered a success on and most of the time, two thirds of the time, we get something we consider a success. But that was not one of those cases that we considered a success. So we decided in those circumstances, uh, it was time to judicially review because this... Well, it's not a judicial review, it's an appeal. Well, appeal of the decision, but it's the same as a judicial review. It's all the same process. (laughs) It's a Supreme Court judge. You file a um, document to get the thing started in court and ultimately go and have a chambers hearing in front of a judge and you lay it out. So Brandon went. 
Yes. Uh, because Emma was the one who wrote the letter, we thought it was probably smarter that Brandon went and did the argument. He does a lot of the uh, uh, judicial reviews now, and um, we thought we'll send Brandon to go do it. We've got the evidence laid out now, and uh, success. Success, yes, and a big success. Uh, I was there for the decision. I was there for another four-day-long judicial review that I was doing and got to sit in and listen to the decision that he got, and it was fantastic. The BC Supreme Court judge ruled that you can't exercise your discretion as the superintendent of motor vehicles to prohibit somebody on the basis of a driving record they consider to be unsatisfactory if the driving record is just one single conviction. And that's great. It's fantastic and because it's, 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 it's been a huge problem that been a, they've been doing it. And it's been a much bigger problem in the last like 14 months yeah. because they, you know, I, I get it. The NDP got in there. They want to change some policies. But one of the things that they've done as a policy is to prohibit people in these circumstances. And it's not justifiable and it's, it's not fair. Um, you know, I have no problem with them sending people a warning letter, uh, telling them they're on double secret probation. Yep. Uh, but um, to prohibit them on the basis of one ticket on their driving record shows no pattern of behavior that would would permit uh, such a harsh consequence. So this is great. It's going to change the um, change the circumstances for thousands of British Columbians. And going forward, you know, we now have a little bit of direction from the court on these things because we haven't had a lot of case law, and the case law we've had has basically said the superintendent's discretion is the superintendent's discretion and they've got a wide uh, a wide you know range of what's acceptable and so now we have something that says this is not acceptable to do it under these circumstances and that's good yeah it's fantastic so i'm very if, and i'm very proud of the you know lawyers in my office we've got uh, we've got some really smart people and and Brandon and Emma i went for lunch with them yesterday actually just to talk about it and um, you're looking at me like Strangely. I didn't know about this. Wow, we, first we I've went, heard of it. We had a celebratory lunch, and yeah. uh, you know, I was uh, it was good because a lot of insight there into into the process, um, and that's the reason that they were able to set this up and and you know pull it off. Okay. Thinking the long game like you do all the time. Yep. Well, good. Congratulations to them. And if you got a notice of intent and you fought it and you were unsuccessful because you had only one conviction on your record, you should give us a call. Ask for Brandon. Ask for Emma. They'll it, be able to help you. Yeah. They're the, uh, they're the experts right now. They are. Okay, so moving on then to the big news that was in the news this week. One thing that came out was all of the discipline stories from the year. Um, the quarterly update of police discipline from West Vancouver Police Department. And there was a really interesting story that caught your eye. Caught both of our eyes. I, and I, we knew about it. There was some hint about it at some point before, but now we got a little bit more detail, still not enough detail. But a police officer from West Vancouver was fired because he was doing all sorts of dirty uh, creepy, creepy, quasi-sexual things. He was sexting. No, straight up sexual. Straight up he sexual. sexted naked pictures of himself to people who didn't want to see that. Yeah, I guess I'm. I'm just separating it from his physical uh, touching anybody. But yeah, he was exploiting his position as a police officer to get people information of women, I guess, and then sexting them. And there was sort of holding out the possibility of reward if there was some sort of sexual. Uh, connection made at some later point. There was someone he issued an IRP to, 
that was he later canceled. Uh, and that's just one thing I want to touch on the IRP aspect of it. But this officer has been fired. And uh, I heard rumors about such a thing going on. And of course, when we get these um, things show up in the media, they don't provide quite the detail we would want. No, like who the officer was and how could it have impacted some of our clients' cases. And as a woman, I'll tell you that a lot of times when you're subjected to that, it's so humiliating and so dehumanizing that you don't tell anyone about it. No, you're, you're a victim and you don't want to talk about it because it's re-victimizing yourself probably to describe it again. Well, it's also, you know, why was I not strong enough to tell this person to go fuck themselves or whatever the case may be? Yeah. No, no, I would imagine that's... Yeah, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'll bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you're wondering to yourself, okay, these are the circumstances that they identified and they're not necessarily telling us everyone, you know, why did it take some time before it was figured out? Um, have they actually figured it out with everyone? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, y you've got these circumstances where this police officer was issuing tickets, was issuing IRPs. Have you gone back and looked at every one of those investigations to make a decision? If that police officer was making those discretionary decisions in, in those cases, even if it's not discretionary, think of an IRP. Police officer has you blow into a device. You have no idea what the reading is unless they show it to you. And they don't always. You could have had a police officer who doesn't like you because you're a, a guy and he's jealous of your uh, girlfriend who's with you, you know, if, and decides to give you an IRP mm -hmm. uh, because he's got some sort of, you know, sexual thing that's motivating his decision-making process. Sure, or maybe he's just jealous of your car. Yeah. Well, if he's willing to do this, I mean, if he's willing to lie in this circumstance, he's probably willing to lie in every circumstance. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, all of the people who should, who were issued anything by this officer at any time should be notified so they can look to see whether or not, you know, it is appropriate to revisit what happened to them. Well, and it, I think it also says something that's really chilling about the IRP scheme that you and I have known for a long time, but not a lot of people are really willing to accept. And that's that it opens up the potential for this type of behavior by the police. It opens up the potential for police to issue prohibitions because of somebody's skin color or because they won't have sex with him or because he's jealous of their car or whatever the case may be. And even yesterday... I was dealing with a case where in the IRP disclosure, the officer had explained part of the reason for why he stopped my client was the color of his skin. And I thought, you know, you'd never get away for very long with saying that in a courtroom. You might say it, but as soon as you got cross-examined on it, you'd realize that you were gravely in error. I conducted a hearing today where the police officer provided one report and then a supplementary report two hours later and then a supplementary report like 40 minutes after that. And each one of those cases, each one of those reports contained information that should have been in the first report. And you're wondering, is it just because a supervisor was looking over it and saying, are you, you know, why are you withholding this from the tribunal? And mm -hmm. what happens in those cases where no supervisor looks at it? Well, yeah. and, and in those cases, the police officer doesn't explain, oh, my supervisor looked at it and realized that I should be telling the truth. No, and if, we got, if we got a criminal file and there were multiple different narratives submitted to the Crown, the first thing, well, not the first thing, but 
you know, one of the things that we would definitely be asking them in cross-examination is, well, why did you write this and change your story about this? And then why two months later did you write this? Who told you to write that? What prompted that? Did you just pull this file out and start reviewing it? No. Well, the upsetting thing about the IRP scheme is that there's no point even going into the fact that this would all be revealed on cross-examination because that just doesn't exist. You just don't have cross-examination. So really your argument is, uh, you know, a you've got a, a big credibility problem with the police officer that you can't really address. There's lots of times I'll tell the adjudicator, this is the problem with the scheme, but that never goes anywhere uh, because the last thing that uh, the government wants to do is is sort of recognize the structural problem with the scheme and circumstances like this and the other ones that we've revealed over the years, calibration, police officers doing things wrong and, you know, police officers uh, who are n- weren't even testing uh, devices and things like that. Yep. You know, all of those things should have led to some serious self-doubt in the government about the efficacy of the scheme. And here is another one. Oh, and but we've Paul, never seen that. But Paul, every time we we exposed an issue, well, think about the most recent one with the lot numbers. Okay. And how police officers were recording different expiry dates for gas standards that didn't have various expiry dates because they can only have one expiry date per lot. And the in Vancouver, there was an officer who changed it two years into the future when it expired because they buy so much of it and don't use it all that they didn't want it to go to waste. So they just lied about the expiry they, date. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's true that the gas probably wouldn't have had any negative impacts over the time but the point is they're not supposed to be using it and it had expired and you'll never know whether it was correct because it's a standard so you can't test it um, unless you have a lab the problem with their response to that wasn't oh no we've got a serious problem with confidence in the scheme here they turned around and they attacked us they filed in the Earl case, you can read the judgment, Earl and, and uh, British Columbia Superintendent of Motor Vehicles online. In the Earl case, they filed affidavit material calling me unethical. I know. And it, you were there. <laughs> it's, I know. And so, like, instead of actually sitting down and thinking to themselves, maybe we have a problem, uh, it's kind of this... Um, police assumption that we have the the very reverse view of uh they just assume everybody is guilty and even if they do it wrong the people are still guilty i don't think that assumption i don't think the police have that assumption i think that assumption is held by the attorney general and and the people who deal with defending the prohibitions well i wouldn't say the attorney general himself but you you're saying his office but i'm saying i'm saying the higher-ups in the police who are involved not in the day-to-day functioning of the scheme um, and some supervisors in the police uh, have that attitude that everybody's guilty, and if they do it wrong, it still doesn't matter because they're probably guilty. And they're, really, we have not I, much yeah. more than procedural protections. I, I mean, I would agree with that, with the caveat that there are some police officers, and you're going to know who I'm talking about when I say many this. Many of them, many of them. Many. In fact, the majority of police officers who don't like to see that and who are working very hard to eliminate that type of behavior. But instead, when they see it, they don't self-reflect. They still just go, oh, you know, shoot, you caught us. And it's only going to be this person. 
you know, it's only going to be in this file. When we know in those cases that they, they were hundreds of files. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to that very first time when we found out that the police in Port Moody were um, using their, their calibration solution far many more times than they were supposed to. And instead of like stepping up to the plate and, and withdrawing all those IRPs and doing what they should have done, they got somebody in there to try and basically patch it up. Yeah, somehow retroactively and, determine which ASDs were... An impossible task. Yeah. Um, and then say, oh yeah, so they were probably all fine, so it's okay. No, they I cancelled mean, too. Yeah, I know. And that is shameful. And the whole thing to me is just shameful that this is the attitude. Which brings us back to our West Vancouver police officer who was issuing IRPs on the basis of whether or not it could lead to some sort of sexual gratification for him. How many times does it happen and did it happen? How can you suss it out? You can't without going to court. And this isn't to say that, you know, hashtag not every police officer, but, um, you know, in any business and in any profession, there are going to be creeps who use their position of power for uh, a sexual advantage. I mean, look what happened with the Me Too movement in Hollywood. You know, it started with somebody pointing the finger at Kevin Spacey, and then all of a sudden, so many people were implicated in this type of disgusting behavior. I mean, uh, Harvey Weinstein being, I guess, the biggest perv but of all. I think, all. like, there's, there's sometimes I run into police officers who are so disgusted that we question the um, integrity of the police, and we're not. You know, we're saying that there are individuals out there who are a problem. And any police, police officer, officers. yeah, and any police officer who denies that that is a possibility sets it up to happen. Yeah. They are encouraging it. They are overlooking it. It's going to happen maybe with their partner, maybe with somebody they work closely with because they're just going to overlook it. You well, think we have had police officers who were running drug, uh, you know, running schemes to sell drugs and using people on the downtown east side. We've had police officers with uh, significant drinking problems who are hiding their drinking problems. We've had police officers exploiting their situation for sex. We've had police officers who commit perjury with regularity. And all of these things have been caught and yet there's still some police officers who are like, they, they're, they're almost, they're so offended by the suggestion that the police are, are not perfect. And, you know, I get it. The police officers have to do their best to be truthful and everything. And they all swear to that, but I'm sorry. There are some who are psychos and liars. Yes. And, uh, I mean, you remind me of the words of the BC Supreme Court in you know, what is still one of my favorite IRP decisions of all time, Spencer, um, where the judge said to assume that the police have no reason to be careless or inaccurate or untruthful uh, does nothing to discourage such behavior if and when it does occur. And that human nature being what it is, a tribunal that assumes such things never happen virtually guarantees that they will. I think the other thing is, you know, we only discovered this, all of this information, all of the stuff that we've blown the lid off that they've been doing wrong because of digging. Things that we would have been able to discover probably much more easily in cross-examination, we had to dig for. And there's all the people who came before we got to the bottom of the hole who don't get any, uh, any relief. Well, and a sad part about that is that um, 
you know, we spent hundreds of hours digging for a lot of that information, and now the results have been by the police to just find other ways to hide the information. So rather than looking at ways of making it um, more transparent, they've there's been methods that have basically been to conceal it to some extent. I think, though, my understanding of what's happened from who I've talked to and and the various layers is that the efforts to make things more transparent were being led by police officers because they said we shouldn't have anything to hide and they were shut down at a higher level. I know. Which is troubling. That's your government, folks shutting down efforts by the police to be more transparent in a process where you can't cross-examine and can't compel disclosure. But I, I don't want to just blame the government, just a broad-based government, because it's it's also some higher-ranking police officers sure. um, who seem to always be the ones who are not uh, supportive of transparency and not supportive of a proper review scheme uh, they seem to want to. They're the you know the people who are behind the forms that have uh, instead of having even check boxes for what the evidence is, just says what the evidence is. Is every approved screening device that was used was functioning properly within its uh, recommended and uh, tolerances and ranges and properly serviced and everything. And it's not even a check box; it's just written on the form. Yep. Well, we'll those are the people who are behind that on that soon, and that might be next week's uh, podcast. We'll talk more about that. But um, with that very chilling bit of information at the back of your minds, now it's time for us, Paul, to talk about ICBC's big announcement this week. You always look at me like I'm the one expected to explain what the big announcement is. So, no. uh, okay, well, no, I mean, it's I'm fine. Trying to include you in the discussion. No, well, it's it's your podcast. I Kyla. could sit here and listen to the sound of my own voice, but I'd get bored. Well, I mean, somebody commented on Twitter this week that our discussion here uh, in the last one, and I don't know, maybe they were joking, uh, was better than the things they hear on talk radio. <laughs> and I keep thinking that we should have like maybe some ads in between or something just to break it up or oh, some yeah. sort of some sort of little musical interludes or something. Somebody please sponsor the podcast. <laughs> we don't need a sponsor for the podcast. It's already quasi-sponsored. If they could just provide like Diet Coke, that's it. I just need like some Diet Pop. I think I've got a Pepsi in the fridge here. I could use it right now. <laughs> um, no, uh, ICBC, they're... Uh, I have had this ongoing problem with ICBC and it goes way back. So bear with me for a moment. I moved to British Columbia in 1999 and uh, I immediately had the hate on for ICBC for a couple of reasons. One was air care. I had a brand new 1999 uh, Ford Escort I bought because I knew that my old Volvo would not pass air care. I bought this Escort. It was brand new. I got here. It had 2,400 kilometers on it and I had to take it and get it air cared. And it led me to be angry about air care because I knew that new cars weren't failing. And so I started making FOIs about air, air care. And that's um, the day they released the FOI to me is when they made new cars only have to go every two years. And apparently after that, they started doing uh, reviews of air care fails to see whether or not it was really any need for air care anymore. So I'm glad to say that I was one of the reasons we don't have air care anymore, although I believe in the idea of making sure our cars don't pollute. But the other thing that really got me was ICBC advertising, check out our rates. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, it's a monopoly. I moved here from, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was living in Cuba. Because but, I, like, you know, you should yeah. check out the rates because you're going to have to pay them. Yeah. I, it felt like an East German thing. It's like, 
the East German store, consume, come on in and you can, yeah, there's one thing on the shelf. There's nowhere else to go. You know, they advertise Trabants uh, in East Germany. There's some great ads on YouTube for the Trabant cars. There was no other car to buy. Wendig, schnell, ausdauert und robust. Der neue Trabant 601. Anyway, the, uh, why have an ad for something when you, there's no other option. So that made me quite upset. And I've had the hate on for ICBC advertising ever since. And I've been supportive generally of advertising that reminds people not to drive like a jerk and that there's punishment for not driving oh, yeah. like a jerk. The education message. Yeah. But they are going to cut that back and put that money into enforcement. Yes. And I tweeted that that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like how much money? It's quite a bit of 2. money. $2.3 million. Yeah. Okay. So they're going to put that into enforcement. and They'll I, make it back by enforcing traffic safety laws. Well, that's the thing. Maybe they'll make it back in traffic tickets. Maybe they'll make it back in um, in a reduction in accidents or less severe accidents. I guess the thing is they're just trying to, I mean, I look at that as a legitimate attempt to try and find some way to curb what is widely seen as a problem of very irresponsible driving in British Columbia and in particular in the lower mainland of BC. Mm -hmm. The question is, is it ever a situation where the insurance company, even a government-run insurance company, should be, like, funneling money here and there. Like, shouldn't police forces just be properly equipped to do these things? Like, should we be taking it out of, you know, ICBC has a loss. Should we be taking money from ICBC to put it into, you know, policing? Well, I think if they spend less on advertising, they'll also lose less. Because, like you said, they have a monopoly. You don't need to advertise ICBC to get people to buy ICBC. So it doesn't make sense that they have an advertising budget to check out our rates or to, you know, learn about your your comprehensive coverage or but whatever. I have no idea if ICBC even advertise. I haven't seen any advertising from ICBC for a long time. I've seen some advertising. I saw one that ticked me off because the model in it was like blatantly anorexic. And I was like, really? You couldn't cast someone who looked like they maybe ate a sandwich in the last 10 years? So that's why I remember it. Um, but yeah. People who are very thin also need car insurance, Kyla. So I don't think you should She be. looked very happy about getting car insurance. But, you know, maybe if ICBC weren't in such a financial crisis, she would have also been able to afford to eat. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> this probably wasn't an issue of money for her. Um, the uh, No, I haven't seen a whole lot of advertising. I see a, a few tweets and things like that. But most of the time when I see that, like promoted tweets, it's usually something that you could argue is uh, is for the sake of not trying to persuade British Columbians that ICBC is a good thing, but that, you know, you should drive better. Sure. But, I mean, in the last year, we've had a different government and a different person at the end of the day in charge of ICBC. But it was under the NDP that they ran those check out our rate ads. They stopped that That was entirely. a different NDP. Yeah, oh, I know. It was a very different NDP than we have now. It was an NDP that built decks. Well, it was, it was an NDP that had, from what I could see, no management skill. And it seems that our current NDP at least have some management skill uh, so far. I mean, maybe you can hide it if you don't have it for a year or two, but they seem to be doing okay. Yeah. I mean, people have complaints. We, I disagree with many of the things that they do, but I'm, I'm the not. The Uber discussion last week and whatnot, but. Well, there's, there's, hmm. So that previous NDP government had, uh, under Glenn Clark there, and at the end with Ujjal had, um, 
um, a lot of ideology and a lot of paternalism and didn't really accomplish a lot. And when Gordon Campbell was elected, you know, there was some management, uh, things that actually got done for a while. And then, of course, they slipped into, uh, uh, you know, becoming sort of banal and accustomed to their uh, power. And then Christy Clark got in and they seemed to have the, the worst of the worst running the party. Um, and right now, the NDP, you know, uh, one thing I'll give for John Horgan is he announced very quickly after they were elected that they have to transition into being a government and not just come up with policy and ideas and pass legislation, but be able to actually run those ministries. So Yeah, well, I mean, you look at like Mike Farnworth and David Eby, both very ideological when they were in the opposition, but also look at the challenges that they're specifically having to deal with since they came into power. You've got casinos, oh, I know. money laundering, <laughs> ICBC's dumpster fire, everything's the worst. Turns out our entire province was just running a shell game. Um, you know, so I, ideology has to give way to management. I wish there wasn't so much give way when it came to road safety policy, but putting money back in enforcement has been sort of the line that you and I have been repeating. Education and visible, consistent enforcement. And I, I think when they announced the speed camera, red light cameras that were going to measure speed, I said, put the money, don't put the money in the cameras, put the money in boots on the ground, enforcement, that will deter more people. And they're doing it. I'd... I'm going to do a Paul Doroshenko and take credit. <laughs> right ahead. It's probably but, not But I've been, I've been also <laughs> saying it too. Uh, I don't think you have to necessarily write tickets. I think you can pull people over. Yeah. Uh, and just the act of people seeing a vehicle being pulled over is often very effective to discourage others. The and perception that you will get over. caught. Yeah. So the, uh, it's very useful. So public education we know is effective. If their advertising is for public education to encourage people to drive well, great. Um, visible enforcement. But I will tell you one of the things that I run into every once in a while with police officers, we talk about roadblocks and they will often tell me, well, it's amazing what you can get at a roadblock. Like uh, there's so many people that you can stop so many cars that you will get a quite a number of people. But then other officers are angry because, well, they learn where the roadblock is and then they, they'll figure out some way around it. And in many places in the United States, they have to pre-announce where the roadblocks are yep. and there might be people who are driving around it but for the most part that is really visible education and enforcement that reminds people don't do it in the first place so i would like to see uh visible roadblocks you know if there's always police officers watching to see if cars turn off down the road, but yep. visible roadblocks are an effective thing. You can set it up, not necessarily in the direction of heavy traffic, set it up the other way. If there's somebody driving by and they've had a drink and they, you know, go through and they manage to not get stopped at the roadblock, they may be under, but they will be apprehensive well, next I, time. I will guarantee you, Paul, that in 20 days... Beginning in 20 days and carrying on probably into mid-January, you will see a number of roadblocks. And I don't just mean because counterattack season is upon us, but counterattack season coupled with... The big change. The big change. It's menopause for the... Uh, no. 
I don't. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's a life crisis. It's, it's for menopause the, for your charter rights. It's a yeah. It's a life crisis for your charter rights, and uh, we'll see how that one works out. We're going to talk about that one in depth, I guess, in the next few weeks. And we touched on it a few times, but yeah, um, it is going to be it's going to be dramatic and painful for a lot of people in this country because people don't know when they're pulled over, um, the circumstances in which they are required to provide a roadside breath test. Well, don't worry. I'll make it easy. Soon you are required to provide a roadside breath test, period. Well, lots of people, especially if they've been away for a while, out of the country for a while, they don't know or people aren't necessarily monitoring it because they don't drink. should uh, just don't listen to the Driving Law podcast. Available worldwide. It is. What is our next topic, Kyla? Our next topic I think is... we've exhausted it, except that I would say, I don't know that $2.4 million goes very far. I don't know. Maybe it does. I don't either, but I'm not a budget person. Edmonton has a very interesting driving law case. Actually, credit to Eric McGracken, who was on the podcast last week, who tipped me off to um, this story by asking you about it on Twitter. Painful, painful case. Horrible, horrible thing. It involves a uh, charge. It was originally a charge of second degree murder and hit and run in circumstances where um, you know that death or bodily harm has resulted from the accident. So very serious criminal offenses. Um, Guilty plea was entered to manslaughter. What happened was a man was out at the bar on White Ave in Edmonton, and I'm sure you, Paul, know more about... (laughs) I can visualize the whole scenario as it played out. Um, And he uh, left the bar. There was some type of a dispute with a guy in a parking lot. I mean, the details weren't entirely clear in the story, but he Hmm. ended up getting in his car, and he was going to leave, but instead ran over uh, this young man who was a UFC fighter, uh, ran him down and left him to die in the parking lot. Yeah, and took off and um, then dropped off his passengers from his vehicle and then I think faked a theft of his vehicle, stole yeah, a license Yeah, he drove his vehicle into a ravine and then the next morning called in and said that uh, his license plate had been stolen. He put different plates on his vehicle and drove it back into his garage. Yeah. So lots of, you know, not a spur of the moment after-the-fact yeah. stuff, yeah. So yeah. it was a real attempt to hide it. and uh, But terrible, you know, the running somebody down. Well, running somebody down, but also when you have two passengers in your vehicle. You've well, there's, there's nothing good about these no, facts. No, you've made them complicit in what you did. You've put them in this horrible position where they don't know whether they should report what you did to the police. Um, you know, they're friends with you, but they're also now, you know, involved in your alleged murder. Um, and traumatizing, I- inevitably traumatizing the people that were in that vehicle. Yeah, I guess I haven't been thinking so much about that, aside from I've been thinking more about the family of the of the deceased fellow there. Um, but in any event, so Eric texted me to ask me what the range of sentence was and um, for something like that, and it's that's a very tough one. You know, I came up with something that I, I thought would probably suit it, but, um, well, you know, of course we don't know the, the facts. But, uh, you know, if, if you're wondering about hit and run, 
just hit and run, simple hit and run in British Columbia, uh, the criminal hit and run, you're, you're, you're likely, if you're convicted, to get jail in BC. It might be a very short period of time, uh, a day or a week, but um, you know it's, uh, it's uh, an attempt to avoid responsibility in our justice system and the courts take that very very seriously so especially because it's so easy to commit a hit and run in the sense that you um you know you're already behind the wheel you're already behind the wheel you have this implement that can get you away fast fast and a lot of accidents happen in circumstances where there's not a lot of other people around we're not talking about you know rear-end collisions and intersections in the middle of the day we're talking about running over pedestrians at one o'clock in the morning in the pouring rain when it's dark out and visibility's low it's also the, the least courageous thing you could possibly do yeah um so they take that very seriously and uh, you know imagine a hit and run where you've run somebody down you've used your car as a weapon and we have this thing you know, we look at driving offenses and driving is fluid and, you know, people make, regular people make some sometimes very bad decisions and there's lots of inputs there as they're doing it and there's lots of things that can affect it. I mean, we know that the music you're listening to can affect the manner in which you drive. There's lots of things that can affect it. So we tend to have a significant amount of sympathy um, or empathy or I don't know what you'd call it, but we, we tend to be able to put ourselves, place ourselves in the position of that person and and um, so lots of times we look at these driving offenses and we have uh, maybe a more lenient view of it. And this is one of those circumstances where it's really the opposite. Yeah. Um, you know, this is somebody who's... An intentional who's, act. Yeah, used their vehicle as a murder weapon and exploited the fact that uh, a vehicle can be used to kill people. And we didn't really think of that much a decade ago, but now that we've seen people driving vans into crowds and that sort of thing... Uh, it's be, you know it's very clear that a vehicle can be used in a wep as a weapon, and it's the worst of the worst. I mean, it's just awful. Yeah, it's horrible. And what's worse is it happened in Alberta. The type of sentences that you'd get in British Columbia for something like this. I mean, here seven years. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that it would be any different here for that type of file. Well, we don't know do though. We don't know about. The accused. We don't know about his personal circumstances, what may have been going on in his life at the time that contributed to this, what's going on in his life now, what his background is, and all of that, you know, has to go into sentencing as well. Um, which brings me completely off the topic of driving law, but onto something else that I feel is related, and, and, and I'm going to surprise you by talking about it. A couple weeks ago, there were protests in Vancouver. You and I drove by them on the way to court or something one day. People were protesting, calling for a judge to be fired because he gave a two-week jail sentence to a youth who was charged with a sex assault. I wasn't with you. Uh, I heard about it. The, yeah, uh, you were driving then. to court. Somebody more somebody important else. than me. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was um, that's very problematic. I mean, aside from the fact that it's ridiculous and dumb, uh, judges can't be fired. Uh, it was a judge who's applying the law. He was a youth. Um, the, and he uh, had to take into consideration. People were saying, oh, you know, this is the same thing that happened to Brock Turner in the U.S., that the, the judge didn't want to compromise his bright future. Well, first of all, he's a youth, so the Youth Criminal Justice Act kind of requires you to consider that. And secondly, sentencing is an individualized exercise focusing on the individual who is being sentenced, not the individual who they harmed. If we punished people based on who they committed crimes against, then sentencing would look very different across this country. I mean, it's 
it's something that is taken into consideration by the courts and yeah, it's we had an aggravating that, factor. Yeah, but it's not um I mean it can't be key because it is individual, sentencing is individual and the the goals and principles of sentencing um are not largely I mean it's not an issue of vengeance and it's not largely guided by uh you know who suffered the harm. It may be the type of harm that was suffered, but even that, in some circumstances, if the harm wasn't really something relatively anticipated, that can not necessarily play in so much. But I was very upset um, about the manner in which that was discussed. Uh, if you want to complain about the law and you know the range of sentencing that a judge has, Come on our podcast. <laughs> oh, well, no, go ahead and, you know, start a petition, write your M, uh, MP, uh, lay that out, uh, you know, make that argument and, and do it in a manner that makes sense. But the Youth Criminal Justice Act, for the most part, um, and I don't, you know, there's lots of pieces of legislation that I'll take issue with, uh, has been guided a lot by social science and uh, a lot of experience. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, Generally speaking, very rarely do I second guess judges when I'm sitting in court, uh, or this particular judge when I've been in front of him, um, in the sentence that he applies. I, it's very rare that I I hear a uh, watch a sentencing for somebody else, or I'm involved in a sentencing where I disagree with the sentence that that's imposed. Most of the time, I actually agree with it, and I, you know, may, just maybe just because <laughs> just because it fits with my worldview doesn't make it right, but. Um, you know, for the most part, it, it seems quite reasoned and reasonable. Yeah. And I think, you know, this case in Edmonton is going to be, when we look at it, uh, either a case where you have somebody who's got a high degree of moral blameworthiness and committed a really horrible act and has no good explanation and goes to jail for a long time, or somebody who has a really good explanation, who has some really significant mitigating factors and who might get a more lenient sentence than we would otherwise see on the basis of that. So I'm really interested to see in that case what mitigating factors come up and how that plays out in the sentencing decision. The um, the the pitchforks, um, you know, come out and people really want um, want vengeance. And you know, I've only read that one side of the thing. We haven't heard anything about the uh, about the offender at this point. Um, and I find myself, you know, leaning to the pitchforks, waiting to hear the other side. Sure. You know, I'm going to put my pitchfork up against the wall. So I have it ready if I need it. <laughs> That's proverbial. We're just talking about, you know, I sort of the, 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 the sense one has in their stomach that they really want to see, you know, some yeah, well, harsh my first comment repercussions. Was, I'd give the guy 10 years. That was my first comment. Now you're repeating my first comment. No. In any event, um, <laughs> these are, there's lots to talk about today, but some of it's quite depressing. It is. This is yet another, you know, dark and gloomy episode of Driving Law to listen to. Dark and gloomy outside. Exactly. I was and lots of rage today, too. You know, yeah. uh, we're very upset about, um, about that police officer in West Vancouver, and I'm more upset about the fact that, you know, so little is done to recognize these failings of the justice system to try and fix them in the future. And the... But but, but Brandon and Emma, they did fix something in the justice system for the future, fix something in the justice system for the future. And maybe ICBC's 
diversion of advertising money into enforcement will do that as well. I have I have no idea whether or not it's going to work. All I know is that, you know, I'm glad that they're not just taking some more money and sticking it in there. They're like reallocating money to try and figure out what might work a little bit better. And I'm okay with that. Go ahead and make some experiments. We, you know, we experiment all, we run all sorts of arguments where we look at things and we think it's mostly you doing it, but look at things and think to ourselves, maybe we can do something here. Let's try this angle. And so I'm encouraged that they're going to try a different angle. Yeah. So let's end the podcast on that positive note then. We, things can get dark, but we can be encouraged when people try and take steps to make them better, even if those steps might fail. What's the date? Today is, uh, the tw- are we on the, we're getting, it's Christmas. It's going to be the 30th. To Christmas. It's going to be the 30th. So. Oh my goodness. Bear that in mind on the holidays. We are going to be producing our podcast still throughout December. We've got some very interesting guests lined up for December. That's all I'll say for now. And tune in next week for another episode of Driving Law. If you need to reach either me or Paul, you can give us a call at Acumen Law at 604-685-8889 or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Thanks for listening.